Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of Grace is on the Case. I'm your host, Gracelyn Keller, and today I'm going back into the archives and revisiting a two-part episode published all the way back in 2021. Two years ago, I covered the cases of the 10 fugitives on the FBI's top 10 most wanted list in two parts. Well, the list has changed quite a bit since then, and although there are still some familiar faces on there, there are quite a few new ones too. So this week and next week, I'll be going back over the list and giving updates on all of the cases of the fugitives who have been apprehended, providing new information in the cases of those who are still on the list, and covering the new cases that have been added. So this episode will cover fugitives 10 through 6, and we'll be back next week to break down fugitives 5 through 1. Let's get started. Just a quick reminder before we dive in that if you have any information that helps with the apprehension of these fugitives or the investigation into their cases, you can submit a tip at fbi.gov tips, and these tips can be anonymous. If you think you recognize or have contact with any of the people discussed today, do not make contact or confront them. They are all to be considered armed and dangerous. Instead, call law enforcement. So filling out number 10 on the list two years ago during my original episode was Yasser Abdel Saeed, who at the time had actually been captured in 2021, but his spot had not yet been filled by a new fugitive, so I covered his case anyway. He stood trial in 2022 for the murder of his two daughters, who he had felt dishonored his family. He was found guilty on August 9th and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And funny enough, we're actually in the same position right now with the number 10 spot on the list currently being occupied by Jose Rodolfo Villarreal Hernandez, who was in spot number three two years ago. He was recently captured and is awaiting trial, but I'll give you a quick rundown of his case anyway, including the updates that led to his arrest. So Hernandez was wanted for interstate stalking and conspiracy to commit murder for hire. So basically, he stalked someone across state lines and then had hitmen take them out. On top of that, he was a drug trafficker and reportedly led the Beltran Levia cartel, although his alleged drug smuggling activities are not why he is on the most wanted list. The person he had killed was Juan Jesus Guerrero Chapa, which was carried out on May 22, 2013 in South Lake, Texas. He is also a fugitive in Mexico and is believed to be tied to numerous other murders there. The stalking and murder of Chapa began when Hernandez's father was murdered by the Gulf Cartel, which had an ongoing feud with Hernandez's own cartel. Chapa was a lawyer and reportedly had ties to the Gulf Cartel, as well as represented alleged Gulf Cartel leader in court. Hernandez blamed Chapa personally for the death of his father, and he wanted to get revenge. To exact this revenge, Hernandez hired a team to deal with Chapa, who was living in South Lake, Texas. By this time, he was also a confidential informant for U.S. authorities and allowed to legally live in the United States. Hernandez sent a team first to track down and then take out Chapa. On May 22, 2013, two hitmen, only known as Clorox and Captain, located and followed Chapa and his wife to their vehicle. 
As Chapa climbed into the driver's seat and his wife loaded bags into the car, the men pulled up behind his vehicle. The passenger in the car containing the two hitmen got out and fired multiple 9mm rounds at Chapa from a handgun. Chapa was hit in the side and back before slumping over motionless in the car. The shooter then returned to his car and the two men escaped the scene. Chapa was taken to the hospital where he was later pronounced dead, but his wife escaped the ordeal unharmed. Three men involved in the hit were already arrested for their crimes at the time, but the two hitmen and Hernandez still remained at large. According to witness testimony, Chapa's sister took revenge on Hernandez for the death of her brother by having one of Hernandez's relatives beheaded and then sending him a video of the severed head. At the time of the recording in 2021, Hernandez was believed to be hiding in Mexico, and the cartel he reportedly ran operated out of the region of San Pedro Garza Garcia, Nuevo Leon, Mexico. Well, on January 7, 2023, Hernandez was captured in Mexico City after an investigation that included the FBI, Interpol, or the International Police, and multiple Mexican law enforcement agencies. He's currently awaiting extradition to the United States. So moving along, coming in at number nine, we have a new face on the board. In 2021, the ninth spot was occupied by Arnaldo Jimenez, who was wanted for first-degree murder. It was alleged that he killed his wife, Estrella Carrera, on May 12, 2012, just one day after their wedding. He's still on the run, and he actually has moved up to spot number two on the list, so we're going to get to him next week. The ninth spot is now occupied by Ruja Ignatova, a Bulgarian national who allegedly defrauded hundreds of investors worldwide out of over four billion U.S. dollars. She's currently charged with conspiracy to commit wire fraud, wire fraud, conspiracy to commit money laundering, conspiracy to commit securities fraud, and securities fraud. Ignatova was the leader of the cryptocurrency OneCoin, founded in 2014. Now, I'm not a crypto expert, and all of this was a bit hard for me to understand, but I did my best, so bear with me. So OneCoin is a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, which I feel like everybody kind of knows what Bitcoin is, so I'm going to use that as our point of reference here. But instead of being decentralized like Bitcoin is, which means that each owner of Bitcoin physically has their own Bitcoin in a digital wallet, OneCoin is centralized. This means that OneCoin is hosted on servers specifically designated for OneCoin and operated by its parent company, OneCoin Limited. Now, their main source of revenue was selling educational packages designed to teach buyers about cryptocurrency trading. These packages cost anywhere from 100 euros or about 107 US dollars up to 118,000 euros or about 125,000 US dollars. However, much of the content in these packages was plagiarized from other free resources, including Wikipedia, and this was misrepresented to buyers prior to purchasing. So here's where it gets kind of tricky. Once an investor purchased an education package, they would receive a set number of tokens that they would exchange to mine for one coin. For those that don't know, because I definitely didn't, cryptocurrency mining is like the computer version of real life mining, except instead of a person swinging a pick at rocks to get precious metals and gemstones out, a computer is solving multiple extremely complex mathematical equations. And hidden in these equations, like 
precious stones inside rocks, are various predetermined amounts of the cryptocurrency. While the equations are successfully solved, the cryptocurrency is freed, and the person running the computer that solved the equation can then add that new crypto to a digital wallet to keep, sell, or trade. Now, this mining process is extremely complex and takes a lot more than your regular laptop or desktop computer to complete. It requires specialized equipment and software that costs thousands of dollars. Basically, the average person can't just log on to their computer and set up a mining operation at home to get free crypto. And the OneCoin people, they knew this. So the founders and leaders of OneCoin, including Ignatova, her brother, and a man named Sebastian Greenwood, told investors that mining for OneCoin was to take place at three different sites, one in Hong Kong and two in Bulgaria. The idea was that the more educational materials an investor bought, the more tokens they would have to exchange for OneCoin mining services, and therefore the more OneCoin that they would ultimately receive. Now remember, OneCoin is centralized, so all of this is happening on servers owned by OneCoin Limited. The people paying into this and essentially paying for OneCoin to be mined on their behalf didn't actually have the OneCoin outside of the servers once they quote-unquote got it. The OneCoin went into a virtual wallet on the OneCoin servers, and after a wallet hit a certain amount of OneCoin, the owner was then allowed to exchange it for euros on a private exchange network set up for investors also on OneCoin servers. Once a person with OneCoin requested their money to be exchanged from OneCoin to euros, a wire transfer was supposed to be sent to them with the total amount of euros they were exchanging for. But shortly after the whole thing went up, limits were placed on the amount of OneCoin that could be exchanged for euros each day. And while more and more investors were being added, this made it extremely difficult for anyone to ever make a profit from OneCoin, let alone recoup their initial investment. Basically, there are hundreds of people paying to participate in this mining, but only a handful could ever trade what they mined back for euros each day. So all these people paid into OneCoin, but then there was almost no way to make a profit once you were in due to the trade restrictions. And since OneCoin was centralized, they were able to keep these restrictions in place because OneCoin could only be traded on its own private marketplace. Pretty shady stuff. Essentially, it's a pyramid scheme. The leaders and founders recruited investors, took all the startup money from those investors, then those original investors recruited more people to invest, and so on and so on and so on. So, you know, that top level of investors probably made some money back, but the further you go down, the less and less the profits trickled down. That's what happened. Due to this, multiple national banks and financial institutions, including those in the United States, Bulgaria, Norway, Sweden, Latvia, Finland, Italy, Hungary, Croatia, India, Germany, Thailand, Belize, and Vietnam, literally like so many places, issued various statements and warnings to consumers not to get involved in OneCoin, starting all the way back in 2015, labeling it as fraudulent. By 2017, the United States had issued a warrant for Ignatova's arrest. On October 25, 2017, a OneCoin office in Sofia, Bulgaria was raided and Ignatova fled the city, traveling to Athens, Greece. From there, unfortunately, her trail went cold and her current whereabouts are still unknown. It's believed that she traveled outside of Athens since then, possibly with a German passport to the United Arab Emirates, Bulgaria, Germany, Russia, 
elsewhere in Eastern Europe or elsewhere in Greece. It's also believed that Ignatova could have had plastic surgery to drastically alter her appearance. Sebastian Greenwood was arrested for his part in the OneCoin scheme in 2018, and Ignatova's brother was arrested in March 2019. She's the only founder that is still at large. While Ruzia Ignatova's crimes are nonviolent, she defrauded billions of dollars from people all over the world, ruining their livelihoods, financial security, and ultimately their lives. Coming in at number eight, we have Alejandro Rosales Castillo, who's still in the same spot that he was in 2021. He's wanted for his connection with the murder of Truk Kwan Sandy Lai Lee, a female co-worker at Shomar's restaurant in Charlotte, North Carolina, in August of 2016. It's been reported that the 17-year-old Castillo and the 23-year-old Lee briefly dated, and that at some point Lee had lent money to Castillo, which he never paid back. After they split, Castillo was said to have started dating another co-worker, Ahima Feaster. On August 9, 2016, Castillo texted Lee and told her he wanted to repay the money that he owed her. Lee agreed to meet him at a Quickstar gas station in Charlotte to collect the money. Castillo's current girlfriend, Feaster, was the one who picked up Castillo and drove him to the meeting in her red Dodge Caliber. Lee was last seen alive leaving for this meeting with Castillo at the Quickstar. Authorities believe that upon the party's arrival to the gas station, Castillo forced Lee to withdraw all the money from her bank account, possibly using a gun to threaten her. According to Lee's relatives, that sum was around $1,000. After the withdrawal, there was no money left in her account. It is then believed that after receiving the money, Castillo drove Lee into a wooded area where he shot her once in the head, dumping her body in a ravine. Castillo and Feaster then fled in Lee's Toyota Corolla. The couple ran to Phoenix, Arizona, where they abandoned Lee's car at a bus station. The car was found on August 15th. They then made their way to Nogales, Arizona, where they crossed the border into Mexico. This was caught on security footage at Customs in Nogales, and you can view this footage on the FBI's website. Lee was reported missing on August 10th, the day after she was murdered. Castillo was reported missing on August 11th, and Feaster was reported missing on August 12th. Feaster's car was found abandoned in Charlotte on August 13th, and Castillo and Feaster reportedly made phone calls to their families on the same day, saying that they were safe but were not sure where they were. Because of the verbiage used in these calls, the families thought that the couple had been abducted and forced to make the calls. On the 17th, Lee's body was discovered, and authorities believe the motive was simple robbery. Fast forward a few months, and on November 2nd, 2016, Castillo was charged with first-degree murder, and then later with unlawful flight to avoid prosecution, when it was proven that he had fled across the border to Mexico. On October 20th, 2016, Feaster turned herself into authorities in Mexico, where she got in touch with her mother and arranged to be apprehended at a U.S. airport upon her return to the States. On October 22nd, Feaster was officially extradited and arrested near Houston, Texas. She was charged with accessory after the fact of felony murder and larceny of a motor vehicle. Feaster cooperated with authorities and told them that she and Castillo had been hiding out with Castillo's cousins in Mexico for two months. She said at some point in that time, Castillo had disappeared again and she didn't have knowledge of where he was. Feaster is still awaiting trial. 
There are still no real updates to share with Castillo here. It's believed that he's still in Mexico, possibly in the cities of San Francisco de los Romo or Pabellón de Ortega. It should also be noted, though, that he has family ties to Phoenix and Charlotte. Moving on to number seven, we've got another new fugitive. In 2021, the spot was taken up by Robert William Fisher, who was wanted for three counts of first-degree murder and arson of an occupied structure. Authorities believe that he killed his wife, Mary, and two young children before blowing up their family residence in Scottsdale, Arizona on April 10, 2001. After the murders, Fisher disappeared, being seen on ATM cameras at 10.43 p.m. the night of the murders. Mary's car can be seen in the background of this footage. The last physical evidence of Fisher's whereabouts surfaced on April 20th, when Mary's car and the family dog were discovered in Tonto National Forest near Payson, Arizona. A family friend had reported that her husband and Fisher had actually gone camping in this area where the car was found, and in retrospect believed that Fisher had been scouting the area and was very familiar with it. Other tips came in after the car was discovered, including one couple seeing someone resembling Fisher walking along a road in a nearby Native American reservation. Now, unlike some of the other fugitives that have been taken off the list, Fisher has not been captured. Because of his love of fishing in the outdoors, many believe that Fisher is hiding out somewhere in the woods or that he has assumed a new identity and altered his appearance enough to begin a new life and evade arrest. Authorities believe, though, that the most likely scenario is that Fisher committed suicide due to the extremely low amount of money he had with him and the fact that there has never been a corroborated sighting of him after the murders. The case has gotten international coverage for the past 22 years, and yet Fisher still has never been found. Due to all of these factors, law enforcement made the decision to remove him from the list in late 2021 to free up a spot for another case that needed the publicity. He was replaced by Yulan Adene Archaga Karius, the alleged leader of the Honduras MS-13. Karius has since moved up from the seventh spot and is currently number five, so we're going to get to him next week. The man now currently occupying spot number seven is Wilver Villegas Palomino. Palomino is alleged to be a high-ranking member of the National Liberation Army, or ELN, which is a Colombian terrorist organization that seeks to control key areas of the country of Colombia, especially those heavily involved in drug trafficking. The ELN frequently engages in violent altercations with Colombian law enforcement, and the group has about 2,500 members and mostly operates in Colombia, with a few of its leaders residing in Cuba or Venezuela. Palomino is wanted in the U.S. for drug trafficking activities responsible for funneling large amounts of cocaine into the country. He's charged with international cocaine distribution conspiracy, international cocaine distribution, and narco-terrorism, which was a new one for me. Basically, this means the use of violence by drug traffickers in an attempt to influence the policies of a government or a society and to hinder the enforcement of anti-drug laws. This violence is the kind commonly employed by traditional terrorist groups, such as car bombings, kidnappings, assassinations, etc., except this is against drug enforcement agencies and police rather than citizens. Federal authorities say that Palomino was involved at a high level in a 20-year plan to funnel cocaine into the United States from Colombia. 
The revenue from the drugs was then going to be used to fund terrorist attacks and buy political power in Colombia, which poses a direct threat to the U.S. national security and law enforcement interests in the region. Unfortunately, Palomino is in the wind and is most likely still pulling strings with the ELN. He's believed to be in Colombia, Cuba, or Venezuela. Our final fugitive this week is number six, Badresh Kamar Chetanbai Patel. He is still on the list and still in the same spot that he was in 2021. So Patel is wanted for a laundry list of charges, including first-degree murder, second-degree murder, first-degree assault, second-degree assault, assault with a dangerous weapon, and intent to injure. Patel was born in 1990 in India. He married a woman named Palek Patel in 2015, and the couple traveled to the U.S. together to visit relatives in the same year. On the evening of April 12, 2015, the couples were both working at a Dunkin' Donuts store in Hanover, Maryland, owned by one of the relatives Patel was visiting. Surveillance video from the store shows the couple in the back kitchen at about 9.30 p.m. before they both disappeared from view behind some racks. Moments later, Patel emerged alone, turned off an oven, and left the store. After Patel left, customers arriving to the store grew concerned after nobody came out to serve them. One of the customers flagged down a police officer nearby, and after checking out the scene, the officer discovered Palek's body in the back of the store. Upon reviewing the security footage, authorities identified Patel as the killer, but because the body was not identified for over an hour after Patel fled the store, he had vanished by this point. Authorities believe that Palek and Patel got into an argument behind the rack in the store that evening about Palek wanting to return to India while Patel wanted to stay in the U.S. Information obtained from Palek's family revealed that Palek had called her family moments before the murder to tell them about this argument. Police concluded that Patel overheard this phone conversation and murdered Palek for that reason. It was reported that after the crime, Patel returned to his nearby apartment on foot. After retrieving some personal items, he got a cab and traveled to a hotel near the airport in Newark, New Jersey. The taxi driver later reported that Patel was very calm during this drive. He checked into the hotel in Newark and was seen on surveillance footage at the counter paying in cash for a room. He checked out the following morning. The last known sighting of Patel was at the Newark Penn Station in New Jersey around 9 a.m. on April 13, 2015, the morning after the murder. He has not been seen since. There is very little information on where Patel could be now, but one possibility is that he could have fled the country and be back in India. Another possibility is that he's hiding out with relatives in the U.S. Patel was originally here on a visa, but it had expired by the time the murder took place. Because of this, he would have been unable to legally leave the country, making the theory that he fled to India a bit more unrealistic. But since there have not been any confirmed sightings of him since the day after the murder, police can't really pinpoint any other possible locations besides that final sighting in the Newark, New Jersey area. And that concludes part one of this FBI Most Wanted update. Thanks so much for listening, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review if you enjoyed this episode. All of my source material is listed on the show notes and in the show's website, gracesonthecasepodcast.com, and you can contact me through there or Instagram DM at gracesonthecasepodcast for comments, corrections, or suggestions for future cases.
Just another quick reminder that if you have any information that helps with the apprehension of these fugitives or the investigation of their cases, you can submit a tip anonymously at fbi.gov tips. If you think you recognize or have contact with any of the people discussed today, do not make contact or confront them. I cannot stress that enough. All of them are considered to be armed and very dangerous. Instead, please, please, please just call law enforcement. And that's it. So I will see you all next week to dive into the final five fugitives on the list.